You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. or your phone or something like that. There it goes. And um, I'm going to actually pray for our preaching of the word right now using the words of Psalm 63, and then I'll direct you to the passage that we're going um, to be in. So please bow your heads and join me. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Father, please feed us now with the manna of your word that your Holy Spirit inspired and empowered St. James to write for us. And, Father, slack our thirst with water from the rock that is Christ, that we may see the majesty and beauty of your Son through the preaching of the word today. And our feeble hearts and weak knees will be strengthened for the race set before us. Our soul clings to you, Father, and your right hand upholds us. Please bless the sowing of your word in these hearts today. Let not the evil one snatch it away. Let not trials and temptations cause it to die. Let not riches or the cares of the world choke it out and make it unfruitful. May we be like the seed sown on the good soil that reaped a harvest 160 or 30 times what was sown. Amen. So we're going to be in James chapter 5. James is right uh, towards the back of your Bible. It's only five chapters, so it's easy to miss. It comes right after the book of Hebrews. And as you're turning there, uh, just quickly review last week, because it's going to set the stage for this week as well. We saw last week that James' audience was facing a lot of the same trials as uh, we see the parable of the sower, which I I just kind of prayed through now. Um, His original audience was facing demonic, worldly wisdom that sowed discord among the church. The lust for riches was threatening to distract them from the source of everlasting wealth. Trials and temptations were stretching their patience thin and causing them to grow faint of heart. And in all this, James' exhortation to them was to be patient as they wait for the Lord's appearing. In the midst of all the calamities and suffering of the ancient world, James exhorts them to look to Job's example of perseverance and patience through trials. And then today, we're going we're gonna to move forward a little bit, but do we not also, right, consider this, do we not also face the exact same hardships, trials in this life, plague, uh, we have our own sickness, disease, financial difficulties, oppression by the powerful at times, oppression by people in our own lives. So all of this that was facing the original audience of James is so relevant to our our day-to-day. So almost identical scenarios in some regards, only the details are different. So, So definitely pay attention and think through how the words of James from 2,000 years ago are just as relevant and lively for us today. Uh, and just to set the sage for today's passage, like I said, we're going to be in James chapter 5. Yeah. Uh, James is going to give us our general orders for life while we wait with patience. So last week, what should we do while we endure all these trials? Wait with patience for the Lord's second coming. Okay, what does that look like? Uh, he's going to give us three commands today. And in the military, general orders are like enduring or standing orders that are like always true for all people, kind of no matter what. You might have a specific mission here or there, but you always need to follow your general orders. So here's an example. 
uh, general order number one for the army is this. In the absence, sorry, I will guard everything within my, the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. So imagine that your unit has been assigned a stretch of the front line to defend and guard for like 24 hours and then you're promised a uh, relief to come. And 36 hours later, no one showed up. You're not allowed to just go, oh, well, uh, I sure hope they're sent sending someone. Come on, boys, let's go back to the front, to the rear for some R&R. &R. No, your general orders, your specific orders, you know, seemed like you'd be relieved by now, but your general orders say, I don't care. You have to stay your po post until you're properly relieved. Or here's another really good example that I think is, is really funny too. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel was the German commander of the Africa Corps in World War II, so he fought in, in North Africa. And one of his standing orders, this is pretty funny, he said, in the absence of orders, go find something and kill it. So what he was doing was he's trying to instill in his, in his soldiers this fighting spirit that would seize the initiative. And let's say you're out in the desert somewhere, you lose radio communication with your higher headquarters, don't just sit there and go, oh, I don't know what to do. Uh, I guess we'll just stay put. No, no, like move forward and attack. Even if you, if you haven't heard from us, do something. It's better than doing nothing, right? And so the benefit of general orders is this. In the absence of orders or the chaos of war, you always know what you should be doing. You always know, what you, I, at least I can be doing this, right? And James 5, 13 to 18 is kind of like that. James is going to give us our general orders as we patiently await the Lord's return. These are our marching orders. We never have to guess if we should be doing that. We know that we should. See if you can identify them as I read the passage now, and then we'll go through them uh, more specifically. So this is James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Those are our general orders, ladies and gentlemen. In the absence of orders, pray. That's our duty always, to pray. In every single verse, you'll find the word pray. Every verse is commanding us to pray as we wait the Lord's return with patience. In verses 13, James commands individual prayer. In verses 14 to 15, he commands the elders to pray for a unique situation. And then in verses 16 and following, he commands this corporate prayer for one another with the example of Elijah. And so let's look closely now at verse 13 with me as we look at the duty to pray individually. This verse poses two questions and two orders. Is anyone among you sick? Sorry, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This word suffering we find in the first question there, is anyone among you suffering, really has the idea of, of hardships, could be persecutions, trials, financial difficulty, a lot of the things that we prayed for uh, just now with, uh, with Steve. And the order is to, in everything, pray, no matter what. Whatever hardships or difficulties come your way while we're enduring with patience uh, this life and all the suffering that it comes with and awaiting the Lord's return, whatever comes your way, you should be praying about it. In chapters 1, 
verses 2 to 4, this was the, the, one of the first, very first sermons we preached on James. James has already commanded us to consider it all joy when we experience trials of many kinds. So when the trials, when the hardships come our way, we're actually to consider them joy. And then in verse 7 of this chapter, he says, be patient and wait until the coming of the Lord. And so what should we pray for? Right? Specifically, we, would, we can absolutely ask God to resolve these scenarios, to remove these hardships from us, but we can always be praying, no matter what, Lord, give me joy in the midst of this trial, and God, give me patience to endure it faithfully for however long it might last. Then there's also this command, let him pray, oh, sorry, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And this word in the Greek really has the, the, the meaning kind of like to take heart, be of good cheer, be strong. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 27. And in that story, Paul is on a ship, and there's this like crazy storm going on, and everyone's freaking out. And Paul uses the same word twice to say, like, take heart, take heart, be of courage, right? Stay strong in the midst of that. And that. So it's not just like, is anyone cheerful? You're feeling happy-go-lucky? Then sing a praise. No, it's like, even if you're suffering, even if there's hardship, you're to praise God. And, pra- and praises are really just prayers, right? All of these songs we just sang are just prayers to God and to one another. I don't know about you, but Be Thou My Vision is one of those songs that like, I could sing every day without tiring of it. It's so beautiful. The tune is so beautiful. That's the command. It's to pray, to praise. You always can be doing that. If you don't know what to do, if you've lost contact with higher headquarters, if you're feeling confused about your situation, you can always pray and praise. Not can, you should. Those are our general orders. Here's an example I want to point us to. It's always the best example, right? Jesus is always the right answer. The example of Jesus. Listen to how often he prayed in his ministry. Okay, I'm just going to go through these. After multiplying the loaves and feeding the 5,000, Mark 6:46 says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Immediately before choosing the 12 apostles, Luke 6:12 says, in these days, he went into the hills to pray and all night he continued to pray to God. In grieving the loss of John the Baptist, when he got news that uh, his cousin, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for him, had been beheaded, Mark 14, 13 says, when Jesus heard, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And then before he had to rebuke Peter, remember Peter rightly identified that he was the Christ, but then it was like, no, 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 you're not going to die, this whole cross thing, that's nonsense, Jesus. So right before that, Luke 9, 18 says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Immediately before the transfiguration, this is when they, he went up on the mount and, um, and they saw his full glory and Moses and Elijah were there. Luke 9, 28 says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. Before preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 11, 1 to 11 says, he was praying in a certain place and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then most famously, I think, is, is right before his crucifixion. We learn that uh, in Mark 14, 26, when Jesus and his disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the night before Jesus is to be betrayed and crucified, what is he found doing? Singing. And then a few verses later in Mark 14, 32, it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. This, is, this should be like mind-blowing. Don't, don't move too, too fast past this. Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, needed to pray throughout his ministry on this earth. If Jesus needed to get alone to pray, 
if he needed to pray for the, before these events, before these trials, before these hardships, how much more do we, brothers and sisters, need to be filled with prayer at all times, in all ways, for all things? Right? We're not above Jesus, for sure. Like he needed to pray. We need to follow his example in getting alone to praying. Really, I think this command here, this general order, number one, so to speak, are you, are you suffering? Then pray. That really needs to be our first instinct. That when we encounter hardship, when we encounter trial, when we encounter bad news, when we begin suffering, when we need courage, our first instinct should be to pray. I think James, if he were here to hear us moaning about our hardships or grumbling, complaining, one of the first things he would ask would be, have you prayed about it? Right? Have you prayed about it? He already said in chapter 4, verses 2, sorry, verse 2, you don't have because you don't ask. Have you prayed about it? Right? And so if someone comes to you with a worry or anxiety or a hardship and they want to tell you about it, you have James's permission to compassionately, graciously just, just ask them, hey, have you prayed about this? Right? Let us be a people that that's our first instinct. And you can help shepherd your brother and sister here by asking them that question. Like, you don't have to be a jerk about it. But if somebody comes to you really burdened with something, let it be our first instinct to say, have, have we prayed yet? Have we prayed about it? Right? Let's admonish one another and stir one another up to be quick to pray. We know that in every circumstance, in every hardship, our general order, our first instinct ought to be, let's pray. So look now at verses 15 with me, sorry, 14 with me. And moving on from individual prayer in just general hard circumstances, James is now going to address like a unique situation, those who are sick. And we need to slow down here for a few verses because uh, if we're being careful readers, when we read verses 14 and 15, they're going to prompt at least three questions from us, okay? And so let's read those verses now and then, and then get into those questions. Verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Okay, kind of an odd thing. Maybe, maybe you, you've never seen that before. I haven't seen the elders show up and anoint anyone with oil before, so this is kind of weird. So let's just move through it a little slowly and, and think about it rightly. First question is, who are the sick? Right? If anyone is sick, let them call for the elders. I don't think this is a broad, like, anyone who's ill for a couple reasons. Before we move any further, I will say there is a, uh, an interpretation of this that sees this as not physical illness, but just general spiritual weakness, and that argument's fairly compelling, but uh, I think ultimately not persuasive. But if you're interested in hearing more about that, just follow up with me after the service. I think James here is talking about people who are gravely ill. And here's the reasons for that. First of all, the sick person has to call the elders to them. So they're presumably immobile. They're so sick that they're bedridden, basically. And then, who has to do the praying? Right? The elders are called to do the praying. This person might not even be conscious. They might be uh, maybe in a stupor. They're just like, can't even speak, right? Whose faith is in view? It's the elder's faith. It's the prayer of faith, the elder's prayer of faith that's gonna save them. And then the elders are commanded to pray over the person. This, this could look like laying on of hands, but presumably they're, they're standing around this person over them. And then finally, it says the Lord will raise them up, which is uh, frequent language for people being healed in the gospel. So I think pretty clearly, this passage is talking about someone who's so, so sick that they're bedridden, they're in hospice, they're in the hospital, something like that. They have a very, very serious injury, maybe terminally ill, uh, or, and their life is at risk, okay? So now the second question is this, uh, like why are they doing this, 
Why are they doing this? Especially to us moderns, we would think the first thing to do is get them to the hospital and get them the right medical treatment and get them the right diagnostic and whatnot. So there's a little bit of difference here in that that doesn't exist in James' day, but yet that's not the focus of what's going on here. We look at what they do is they call the elders. Why? Because shepherds are responsible for the health and the well-being of the sheep. We learned this morning you missed a really sweet time in, uh, in Sunday school. If you weren't there, we studied Ezekiel 34. And here's what, here's what this passage, uh, it reprimanded the shepherds of Israel for. Listen for this healing, binding up language. This is what the shepherds were supposed to do in ancient Israel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. So it's in the job description of a shepherd to care for, bind up, heal the sheep that are sick and hurting. And so the elders are called because that's their role. Those are the shepherds of the church. Their job, part of their shepherding, isn't just preaching and teaching or leading the congregation in prayer and worship or or counseling, but it's to pray. It's to pray for those who are sick, the sheep who are the most vulnerable. And so this is part of eldering. This is part of a shepherd's responsibility to go out for that sheep who maybe needs more attention than any of the others right now because their condition is so severe. Second, why are they then commanded to anoint with oil? Right, I think that's maybe the weirdest part of this whole passage. What's, what's with the oil, right? First of all, I don't think we can just say it's uh, like medicinal. So there's some interpretations that say they're to pray and add the oil. So it's prayer and medicine and God will work through either one. Here's why I don't think that that's a satisfactory explanation. Oil does have medicinal purposes, and it had a lot of medicinal purposes in the ancient world, but we're talking about someone's condition who is so grave, like oil's probably not gonna fix it, right? Imagine somebody with like a brain tumor, and you're showing up with like, oh, let's put a little lavender on it, right? Okay, this is far beyond that. This is far beyond that, all right? And then the second reason is, Oils used to anoint the sick in Mark 6, 6, chapter 6, verse 13. So this is where Jesus sends out the disciples to proclaim the gospel, drive out demons, and heal the sick. And it says that the apostles anointed people with oil and healed them. And in the context, it's pretty clear that this is a miraculous healing. It's not the oil that did the healing. It was the, the spirit working at the advance of the proclamation of the gospel. So there's, there's another reason there. And so I think all of those things, the anointing wasn't about medicine as it was a kind of setting apart this person. So in in the Bible, anointing is a way of setting apart someone for a specific purpose. Good example is Exodus 28. Aaron and his sons are to be the priests in the tabernacle, and they are set set apart for that job. Part of their kind of commissioning, so to speak, is they're anointed with oil. And then later on in 1 Samuel 16, David is selected as king by Samuel. Samuel is told, take a horn full of oil to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to find the king. And when, they, when David is selected to be the king, then oil is poured on his head as a sign of like, yes, you are to be our king now. All right? This is the king that, that God has chosen who he's going to raise up to save Israel and deliver them. And then even in Jesus' life, in Mark 26, 
This is a pretty famous story where uh, Jesus is, is, re- is reclining a table and Mary of Bethany comes with an alabaster flask full of really expensive perfume and she pours it on his hair and he says, she's doing this to prepare me for burial. So she's, she's doing this symbolic act to set me apart or, or to commission me for the task ahead, which is, which is to die. And so this anointing is a setting apart of the sick person for God's, to, to signify to them, you are under God's special care and attention right now, and that the congregation, and particularly the elders, are giving you specific and concerted prayer for your condition. And so I think this as, adds another question. So should we do this today? Like, is this really necessary? Do we really need the oil for that? I think the answer is absolutely yes, and I wanna wanna kind of show you why, but there's a couple errors we could go with this. Error number one is the the Catholic error. So they they take this verse and they create a sacrament out of it called extreme unction. Okay, nice fancy word there. Extreme unction, this is where you're dying, you're on your deathbed, and you call the priest to do this for you, to, to anoint you with oil and pray for you. This is what the Council of Trent says about the sacrament. Sacred anointing of the sick was instituted by Christ our Lord as a real and true sacrament of the new law. It was insinuated in St. Mark's gospel and it was promulgated by St. James. And so they they say that if you do this, it actually blots out both venial sins, those are like minor sins in Catholic thinking, and mortal sins. These are sins that are so bad, they actually separate you from God. And so if you're sick, bedridden, and you're dying, and you're like have lost consciousness, a priest can come do this for you and it will wipe out your sins, okay? Uh, we don't believe that. We believe that sin is atoned for only by Christ's perfect sacrifice and faith in him alone. And so that would be one error we could go with. The other error would be the error of the kind of health, wealth, and happiness gospel that says God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And if you just have enough faith, he'll get you that. And if, if you're not healthy, wealthy, or happy, it's a problem with your faith, and you just need more faith, and you need to pray more or, or give more in order to get more, right? Here's why this isn't just a blanket guarantee to heal. So it looks like that from the language. It just looks like this will, you anoint them, pray for them, and you'll heal them. That's it. It's not a guarantee blanket to heal. We know this for a couple reasons. One, everyone's going to die because at some point, something will go wrong with your body, and blood and oxygen will stop going to your brain. It's like everyone will die for that reason. And so... If this was a guarantee to heal, we could keep you alive forever by anointing you with oil and praying for you and, and automatically heal, healing you. We also have examples of, of this not happening in like Paul's life. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul relates to us that he has prayed three times about this thorn in the flesh that he has. Many people think it was maybe his eyesight or gout or something like that, that he was just burdened by this physical calamity and he prayed three times, God, take this away from me, take this away from me. And God's response three times was, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't, you don't need to be healed. You need my grace. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. So it may be that it's God's will to heal. It may be that it's God's will to let his grace and mercy and power be illuminated to all for all to see as you persevere through this illness, even unto death, potentially. We also have... James already telling us in chapter 4, verses 15, when you're making plans about going to a city and trading and making money, you shouldn't do that without first saying, like, if the Lord wills it. So all of this is in the context and framed by, if the Lord wills to heal, he will. And we want to have that humble approach in God's, in God's presence as we pray to say, hey, God, if you will, like, we know you are capable of healing this. And let us be satisfied with your will, whether healing comes or not. So here's, I think, the solution to avoid these errors 
is to embrace the supernatural and sacramental nature of reality. Okay? This is kind of foreign language here. I don't know how else to explain it. But it's like to acknowledge that symbolic things and acts really do have meaning and are a means of grace communicating things to us. And I think I can show you with three examples. But this is a huge, huge problem with modernity. We've like discovered this thing called science. We think we can explain everything. And so we're like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that mystical, magical stuff. Like, uh, that's fine. That's actually not the case. So even though modern man fundamentally rejects this enchanted view of the universe, we still live like we do. Let me show you. Imagine like a kiss, okay? Imagine a man comes home from work, his kids greet him at the door, and then he sees his beautiful wife and he goes to her. He's like, dear, I love you so much. I'm so glad to see you. And he goes in for a kiss. And she goes, well, what are you doing? Like, I'm kissing you because I love you. He's like, oh no, I don't need that. I already know you love me. No, like, you know, especially if you've kissed anyone, that a kiss really like, it actually communicates love to the person you're kissing. It's not just a sign it's not this like, you know, fake symbolic thing that we can actually do away with if we just like mature our brains far enough. Like, oh no, you don't need to kiss me. I already know you love me, honey. Right? We, don't, we don't live like that. Here's example number two, right? Wedding rings. At a wedding, we exchange rings as a sign of faithfulness and loyalty and covenant, right? Those rings aren't magical, right? It's not like you put it on and your spouse disappears, like Lord of the Rings, okay? So they don't, the ring itself isn't like this magical totem, that you could walk around and slip it onto someone's finger and be like, we're married now. That's not, that's not what we're thinking. That's more closer to a, a Catholic sacramental theology. But the ring really does mean something. It really does remind us and communicate to us this idea of loyalty and covenant. Okay, and here's example number three. Everyone's experienced this. It's just a simple handshake. Imagine you're meeting somebody new for the first time. Hey, it's good to meet, meet, good to meet you, whatnot. And you reach out your hand to shake their hand and they're like, I, I know you're friendly towards me. Like, we don't, we don't need to shake hands. No, like, when you shake someone's hand, a good, firm handshake, that actually communicates goodwill, friendship, partnership to them. It's not like we just need to evolve further and we can stop doing things like kissing and wedding rings and handshakes. No, like, we need those things. They really do communicate things to us. And similarly, God knows that we need embodied, acted-out rituals because we are embodied creatures. So baptism is a means of grace that really communicates God's promise of being buried with Christ and raised to new life. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace that really reminds us of Christ's broken body and blood shed for us and that Christ, God has welcomed us to his table in fellowship with him because our sins have been forgiven. And similarly, this oil, anointing with the sick with oil, is a, is a means of grace that really assures the sick person that they are being specially set apart with concerted prayer by the elders, and given into the hand of God for care and protection. So should we, should we do this today? I think yes. I think yes, absolutely. Here's, here's our application to the congregation. If you're this sick, you should call the elders to anoint you with oil and pray for you. Okay, but I think we could also broaden this out and just say, hey, generally, like your shepherds exist to pray for you. And at least monthly, you should go up to them before the service, after the service, and let them know how they could be praying for you specifically. Right? And if your, sh your shepherds would be surprised, like, oh, I didn't know you were one of our sheep, then you're in, you're in danger. Like, you need a shepherd. You need the flock. So my encouragement to you is if you haven't done this recently, go find Steve or Josh 
Or Justin, where are you at? Oh, Justin, Jamie, you're out back? They're praying, yes. Go find them and just say, hey, I need you to pray for this and explain what's going on. They would love to do that. That's part of their shepherding care. And then to our shepherds, here's my application for you. You should buy some oil, okay? I have for my wife's essential oils collection a bottle of myrrh. So this is one of the three gifts that was given to Jesus. It smells really lovely. You can come ask me about it after service. It's so special. It's so unique. We shouldn't use like something low like Crisco or, or corn oil or something like that. Like go get a bottle of nice oil so that when someone's sick, we're ready for this, that we can actually show them, hey, we're anointing you with oil. We're, sh- we're setting you apart specifically for prayer, and you should know that you are in God's special care for your situation. Okay? So let's conclude now by looking at James' final exhortation for us to pray for one another. This is in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James here is giving us our final kind of marching orders, but the whole situation describes this, that this corporate, that means bodily, one anothering of confession and prayer is a means of renewal and refreshment to the new covenant community, to the church, to the kingdom. That when we confess our sins to one another, when we pray for one another, it brings renewal, healing, refreshment, strength for what's ahead. And with the hardships that James's congregation is dealing with and the hardships that we are bound to face, we need this always. As we patiently endure hardships and trials, what should we be doing? Confessing our sins to one another and praying for each other. Prayer, then he says, a prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There's a couple different translations there. It's actually kind of a jumbled Greek sentence there. But he's pointing out that God doesn't listen to you, just everybody, and answer every prayer. Okay? That we read that in Proverbs 28, that the prayers of the wicked are actually an abomination to God. So if you're, you're in any doubt about your, your spiritual significance, it's like, go find a righteous person to pray for you because God will for sure hear that person's prayers. Now, this doesn't mean someone who's perfectly righteous, someone who's super, super strong in their faith because all of us are declared righteous in Christ and the priesthood of all believers, we are all entitled to go before the throne of grace in our time of need, as Hebrews tells us. But I want to point out something. In 1 Peter 3, you probably only have to flip two pages in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter deals with this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he's giving some instructions to husbands and wives. And in verse 7, he says this to to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter's saying, husbands, if you are wicked towards your wives, and probably we could expand this to your family, if you don't live with your wives in an understanding way, God's not going to listen to your prayers. That your prayers can actually be hindered because of your sin, because you've rebelling against God. And then further on, just a few verses later, in verse 12, well, I'll read the whole, all 10 through 12. Peter's quoting a, a psalm here. It says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
First, I don't think you could find a better three-verse summary of the entire book of James than right there. That's like the core themes of everything James has been talking about. But specifically, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So James is saying us here that we can expect the prayers of righteous people to pierce heaven, that God's open to and inclined to and waiting to receive the prayers of his people. Revelation describes them as like incense going up before God's throne. Incense is a, a beautiful, fragrant-smelling uh, you know, smoke that rises up in, in certain rituals and ceremonies and whatnot. And, and Revelation says that's what the prayers of the saints are like before God's throne. God's not like, Ugh, here comes Alex praying to me again. Uh, Got to listen to that guy. No, like God is delighted. As a father, he'd be delighted to hear his kids coming to him, asking for help. He's delighted to hear our prayers. They're like incense before his throne. And that's beautiful. And then James does this. He points out Elijah, which is a great example because Elijah was a really cool guy. He was a prophet who was, who was picked to do some secret, you know, special services mission for God. He's, he called down fire on the altar and slaughtered the prophets of Baal. Uh, he, was it Elijah or Elisha, multiplied the, the food for the widow. Am I ruining this? I'm ruining it. Just move on. Uh, so really awesome guy, like did some incredible stuff. But what's James's point, right? Look in verse 17. What's James's point about Elijah? This is really comforting. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's his point? He was just a man. He, was, he had a nature like ours. He had sins like we have sins, setbacks like we have setbacks. He was subject to all the passions and problems that we suffer. He's just a man. And he prayed for, for no rain and no rain fell. And three years later, he prayed for rain and rain came. So James's point is, look, this was just a guy. And look how powerful his prayers were because he persisted in prayer, James says. So this core, I just want to say this again, this corporate bodily one-anothering of confession and prayer is a source of healing and renewal. And that's the picture James uses with Elijah, right? Imagine a parched, dry, dusty land. Hasn't rained for three and a half years. The harvests have failed for three years. And then all of a sudden, this man prays, and the rains come, and the, and the ground soaks it up. And the olive tree and the fig tree blossom and the fruit on the vine grows in abundance. And the animals now have drink for themselves and their little ones and the people have drink. And you're not worried about, am I going to make it to the next year anymore? It's this idea that the prayer brings the rain, the nourishment, the renewal, the times of refreshing, that beautiful springtime of new life and new birth. And James is using that illustration, I think, specifically to say this corporate confession and prayer for one another is what's going to bring renewing and refreshment and new life to our congregation over and over and over again, just like the spring rains do every year. So my challenge or application to us in this is, like, don't wait to pray for somebody. I would love to see this change. I've tried to do this in my own life. It's a little difficult, but it's kind of neat when I catch myself to see how this works. Don't, as you're talking to somebody and they're explaining something about a hardship or a trial or they're confessing a sin to you, don't just say like, hey, okay, I'll pray for that. Now that's good, there's nothing wrong with that, but let's go on the attack. Let's seize the initiative and look for an opportunity to pray for one another. Like, don't let that moment pass you by. That's an opportunity to pray. So as they're explaining that hardship or they're explaining that temptation, just say, can we pray for that right now? And you don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to have fancy, flourishing words. In fact, Jesus tells us not to. Just pray just ask God what's on your heart. I would love to see our, our, the culture of our congregation change 
in this direction of more and more just like every day that we come in here before service, after service, and we're catching up about what happened last week, what we're looking forward to next week, and no doubt there's anxieties and cares and troubles that we're worried about, that we would just see people all over the room with like a hand on the shoulder or just heads bowed together in a corner praying for one another. It doesn't take more than, than 10, 15 seconds even. Right? Just a, a short prayer for that right there. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. That's general order number three. What should you do in times of trouble and hardship? Confess your sins and pray for one another that you might be healed, that the time of refreshing might come. I'd love to see that just even after this service. I'm almost finished here, and Justin's gonna come up, give our benediction. Uh, our musicians, you guys can come up now. We're gonna do our final song. But after the service is over, don't just split You know, for the restroom. You can hold it. Just turn to the person next to you. It's like, hey, I pray for you, right? Let that next 15, 20 minutes after service just be a time of prayer amongst one another and conversation, oh, can we pray for that? And then you keep talking, oh, let's pray for that right now. Like, don't let the opportunity pass you by. Don't just say, oh yeah, I'll pray for that. I'll write it in my prayer journal and forget about it. Like pray right then and there, pray right then and there. So in review, what should we do if we're experiencing hardship? Pray. What should we do if we're seriously ill? Call the elders to pray. What should we do all the time? Confess our sins to one another and pray. In every season, in every situation, no matter the hardship, our first instinct as Christians should be to pray. That's our general standing order. In the absence of orders, pray, right? Until the Lord returns or he relieves us of our post. Please stand and sing this last song, this praise together as we satisfy the commandment of James by praising together. And then, like I said, I just would love to see our congregation overflowing with prayer for one another in the final minutes after our service. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.